Hello and welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I am your host, Ben Kreider, and today I am going to be talking about the Thunder Awards, kind of just dishing out like the MVP, the most improved player, six man of the year, just stuff along those lines. But if you guys did not already remember, I am now part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I made the announcement, I believe, two episodes ago. So very excited about that and what the future will hold. And actually, there is going to be a giveaway. So you guys can check my Twitter. I should post the tweet by the time that this goes up. But the network is providing a really sweet jersey giveaway um, partnered with DraftKings.com. So out of the 30, or I guess like 23 or 26 affiliates that the Basketball Podcast Network has, they all... All the hosts are going to be posting on their Twitters, and whoever has the most retweets, someone out of that pool will be getting a jersey. So let's say that for some reason, you know, you guys come through and I get like 50 retweets or whatever, and that is the top dog. Well, one of you 50 will be receiving a OKC Thunder jersey, so they will contact you. I'll probably contact you. I might be the middleman or something. I don't know how it works, but... Yeah, just make sure to check out my Twitter. It's going to be my name, Ben Kreider. So B-N-C-R-E-I-D-R, and you guys can just check it out, and it should be good to go. But just moving right along into kind of the award show, this was something that I did, I believe, during the like week-long break where it was kind of just pondering, like, you know, what should I be doing? And I was like, hey, you know, I probably should do like a little award show and see kind of the past some of our players have been on. And for the most part, the list might be the same, but there still are a couple wrinkles because of some improvement we've seen from the second half of the regular season. But starting things off with the most valuable player award, this was more or less chosen by the first half of the season and not so much the second half, but a lot of the success came in the first half of the year. I believe the Thunder started like 40 and 48, or why did I say 40 and 48? 20 and 28 to start the year out, and then that's when this huge like losing streak happened, and they didn't meet the over, which pissed everybody off, I guess, who, who placed that bet in, but I mean, the man who was pioneering that was Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and that's why he is the most valuable player for the team. He didn't play even half of the games. He only played 35 on the year, but in those, he was pretty much a one-man offense. We saw a lot of high ball screens from Al Horford, Muscala, whoever was in the mix there, and then he just drive inside. He led the league in drives. Second was Luka Doncic, and it really was not close. To begin the year and... By the time that SJ kind of got pulled, the race was really tight between Luka and him. I believe that, uh, and don't quote me because I don't know, I think that SJ ended with around like 25 or 24 or something, and Luka was kind of around that ballpark range. He dropped down. I think SJ has his number by like four or five drives a game, so it's insane. It just tells you what kind of player he was and how there wasn't a real replacement to him. Like when he originally started getting pulled out in like February, we saw Hamnu Diallo try to be the guy at point guard. He drove in a ton, but it was nowhere close to what uh, SGA was doing in his 34-minute sample size. But during that time, he was extremely good. I mean, he averaged damn near 24 points a game, 23.7 points, 4.7 rebounds, and 5.9 assists while shooting 54% 
and from downtown, he was shooting 41.8% on near five attempts per game. That was a breakthrough that was much needed for him, and for him to become a three-level scorer, that was kind of the primary target. He definitely hit that. I believe whenever I did kind of the predictions for the year, I think that I, I'm going to need to go back and I'll probably talk to you guys tomorrow about it, but I think I was kind of around like 22 points, five rebounds and five assists. So I was close, but he actually exceeded my expectations and the way he was shooting the basketball did it even more so. He had those games where the three point shot was not falling his way, but at the same time, there were other games where a step back was unguardable and he would just get into the zone. The main deal with him, though, was how he operated inside the lane. It's going to be a completely different game. Like, after he got removed, after Horford was out, we did not really see the same offense. And it's because of SGA's kind of role as the driving dish man. So when he comes back, it's not going to look like what we've seen in the past two, three months, really, because of kind of his primary ball handling situation, and it might take away a bit from players like Lou Dort and a bit from players like Baisley. Maladon, he would take a definite hit due to just the uh, the ball handling getting taken up. Like, the initiator's clearly going to be SGA every single play. But in his time, I mean, he was the number one player, and that's why the Thunder were hovering around 500. If he did not get pulled, the Thunder would might even be in the play-ins right now they'd be on the brink of it for sure whether they would have exceeded what the san antonio spurs did now that's another question but they would be right there in terms of making the cut so sga he is the clear number one guy for me i think if there were if there was going to be like a second place maybe like a lou dort just because of in the last half of the season dort was the guy putting up the major shooting performances, and he was the guy kind of tapping into the three-point range, and that definitely needs to be recognized, and that's why with the next award that I'm going to be dishing out, it's going to be Lou Dort for most improved player. Now, this is an award which, honestly, I think could go to SGA as well um, because of the jump he made, because with Chris Paul and Dennis Schroeder, he was honestly that third option as a point guard or just as a guard in general more of a combo guard. He didn't take the ball up. Sometimes he did, but not near as much as Chris Paul and Dennis Schroeder did. So he was the wingman who took the threes. Now he's the superstar really for the roster. So I think in a literal sense, yeah, he'd probably be that guy, but I don't want to be just throwing him all the trophies. You know what I'm saying? I think Lou Dort deserves some credit for what he's been doing, but it doesn't become with, you know, it doesn't come hundred percent. It's not a unanimous vote. Like maybe that MVP pick would be with SGA. There is SGA in that hunt for most improved player, but there's two other guys that I think need to get recognized, and that's Kendrick Williams and Moses Brown. Now, I'm a guy who, in most improved player, I take it a lot different than I think what the common voter would do, and the common voter would assess like a superstar, like Brandon Ingram or something like that last season, you know, where in the years prior, he was good. He was hovering around 20 points, but he didn't hit that little peak where he was averaging 25 or 26 a night and being like the star for the New Orleans Pelicans, you know, I take it as I want to go from what place were you and like in NBA rankings last year to how did you end up at the end of this year? 
And I kind of like to think it from the Christian Wood peripheral, really. And I'm not talking about this here because I think he will be getting votes. But I mean that Detroit season. And here is what I'm talking about. If you don't know what um, Christian Wood actually... He was bouncing around the G League for years. He was part of the Process 76ers, actually, before he got bounced. He was playing for the Wisconsin Herd, I believe, and he was dominant. He was right around the rim all the time. He was developing a jumper, and the New Orleans Pelicans gave him a shot with a 10-day contract. And with that, he looked like an absolute monster. He was putting up 2010 double-doubles, and his averages were just off the charts. For someone who I think at the time was like, 24 years old it would have been a no-brainer someone would have picked him up but he didn't have a ton of success in free agency that season and last year he had really just a training camp offer from the Detroit Pistons he had to beat out Joe Johnson to fill the last spot on that roster and if if it wasn't for that he would probably be playing like over in Europe unless he wanted to stay in the G League another year which quite frankly I don't know if he would be willing to do that. Like, you don't get paid near as much as you would overseas. And he definitely would have the talent to make the transition, you know, if the NBA never panned out. But he got on that Pistons team, grinded from absolutely nothing, went from 15th on the depth chart to 14th. Next thing you know, he has a nice bench roll with the roster. And then by the end of it, he was not just being like a starting piece for the team. He was undoubtedly probably the number one player on the roster and looking into the future yeah he was going to be a major major part of it but Troy Weaver let him walk end up with the Houston Rockets looks like a steal of a contract but that's kind of like how I want to view things as a voter if I were to have a vote like that if you go from 40 you know being like the 450th best player in the league which is like the worst you could possibly be to now you're in the top 40 or top 30 that jump of like 400, that makes you the unanimous choice for me. And I think Moses Brown really does have that story to him. But I am kind of going to play towards, you know, what the the normal vote I think would be. The overall majority would say Dort. But Moses Brown does need some credit here because he started out with the Portland Trailblazers. And actually before that, the Houston Rockets Summer League played like two minutes and then he was gone, got that two-way deal from the Portland Trailblazers, was amazing for the Dallas Legends or Texas Legends in the G League, and then obviously wound up with the Thunder with the two-way contract. But we didn't really like see him as a valuable piece starting things off. Like in the preseason, he had a couple of okay plays, like rebounds, dunks, and honestly, I got such a foggy memory from back then. It might have been the first five games of the year. But, you know what, I actually think it, it, it started in the preseason, but he had like one game, I think it was against the Bulls, where he put up like, I don't know, like 8, 10 points in no time, had a couple rebounds there too, but a lot of it was just right under the rim, playing garbage time in preseason, stakes are as low as it can possibly be, so those aren't real like reps where you say, oh my gosh, he's going to be very big in the future. It was nothing, it was just okay, he made a couple of nice plays, and then the regular season started, and he was kind of a no-name who wasn't playing unless it was just a total, total blowout. So for me, I think he started out as probably the lowest guy on the chain, even below Josh Hall. No one was talking about Moses Brown. Everyone was saying 
Josh Hall as a two-way player, he can really be valuable as a six foot nine point forward. He can shoot the basketball, hasn't played college, so there is more of a kind of mystery to him. Moses Brown had a track record, so I'd say he was like the 17th man on that roster. He built his way up and balled out in the G League bubble, forced Sam Presti's hand to give him a two or I guess three-year contract. And now, I mean, he ended off being the starter, pretty much was placing double-digit averages throughout the entire season until maybe the very, very back end. But he was very close. Overall, he ended up averaging 8.6 points per game and 8.9 rebounds per game in just 21 minutes as a 21-year-old. So I think that's a major jump. I'd say that's kind of the oddball pick. For me, just because he went from, you know, let's just see what he can do here, not a real future really, to now he's on the roster for sure, and I don't think, you know, you're going to drop him in training camp. He's going to stay on a damn near like $1.7 million contract. It's an absolute steal. So he, at bare minimum, will be a very valuable backup for us in the future, and that's, that's saying it very, very lightly. Like, he has been Beasting, and you just have to look at the very final game to kind of see where, where his contributions are. But that jump was wild for him, so I think that needs to be discussed. But Lou Dort gets it for me, and it's simply just because of how his play style has kind of molded out. And to start last season as an undrafted player, got a two way contract, he kind of had that same deal as like Moses Brown almost. He had a 35 point game. I think in like the first 10 he played with the OKC Blue, I remember seeing it on a Reddit. So that's kind of where I started with him. But the shot was never prevalent with him. It was all about slashing in the basket and playing really, really nice defense. So he was a slasher there. Finally got to play. I think it was against the Timberwolves or something. And he had a really clutch loose ball dive on like Shabazz Napier or something. Changed the tides of that one. And he was just a positive impact ever since because Hamnu Diallo wasn't playing. Terrence Ferguson was dealing with other like personal things. Like he's still dealing with that. But he just kept climbing. And that little series he had against James Harden, I mean, that is an absolute classic. There's so many different parts of that series you can dissect. But the main one for me is probably James Harden versus Lou Dort. I remember Doris Burke hyping up Dort so much. Everyone on Twitter hating it, but I loved it. I thought Doris Burke was great in that series because of how handsy he was. She was just kind of saying how it was. Like, he was very damn physical, and the refs were not showing Harden near enough uh, love as what he's used to, which is flail your arms and you get to the free throw line. But that series capped off with the Game 7 where he was going sharpshooting from downtown obviously the main main one to kind of end things got rejected by Harden but the Thunder wouldn't have even had a chance without Dort dropping 30 in that game and even before that defense saved them but um the three was so shaky and the the real deal was he's going to be very good as a defensive kind of specialist but what about the the shot and that was what was necessary. He gave us that and much more this year. So Dort ended up averaging 14 points per game, 3.6 rebounds, and 1.7 assists, had 0.9 steals and 0.4 blocks, 
but the big deal for me is what he was doing from distance, shooting 34.3% on 6.3 attempts a night. That is the most that was on the roster this year, so I say 34% is very good, and he'd have those games where he kind of relapsed back to shooting like 2 for 7 or 1 for 8 or whatever, but for every one of those, he'd also kind of return fire with like a 4 for 4 game or he's leading the team in points, being amazing as a two-way player. So I think that kind of overpowers things. So the three-point shot was a big deal with him, and he just he kicked the expectations right out the door. He has asserted himself as a great shooter, and not even just as a catch-and-shoot piece. He is still good with the ball in his hands. He can dribble and pull up. He can do a step back just a little bit. It's kind of working into his arsenal. But it is, it's there, and it's growing. Uh, I think that, though, with him, it's not just about that. Because who would have expected him to be able to kind of penetrate to the basket at such a high rate? I did not see it coming. I saw him as someone who could kind of go from point A to point B. Straight line to straight line. Maybe off the ball movement would have been his best kind of calling card. But he can start in the corner, and if a defender sags up on him, he can shoot that corner three, and if they start tightening up, you know, he'll do like, I don't know, he'll start it out with like a between the legs or just a simple crossover, and then he has a pretty nice quick step just to get a quick burst of acceleration, get around his defender, and then he just uses his frame to almost box his man out of the play and drive in hard and even attacking the basket. He showed so much aggression. He loved absorbing contact and actually trying to get to the foul line. He ended up averaging 3.2 of those a game, shooting 74%, which is a big upgrade from what we saw in his rookie year. But it was just all around on the offensive side. He was a great, great piece. And I don't know if it's at like a star level. I don't think you can use him as like a big three just based off of the offensive game. But the defense he's been showing, it's still at that very high level where he could seriously be getting like all defensive second team votes from not just OKC Thunder Media, but actually the grand public. If the Thunder were playing much better and they made the plan or something, he'd probably be on one of those teams. Since they were kind of bad, I don't know if it's going to kind of work towards his favor, but he definitely is in that kind of upper crust of uh of players right now so the defense is at an all pro level all-star level all defensive level and the offense took form from like just a basic prototype he's okay at finishing around the basket can't hit free throws doesn't have a three-point shot to him is he gonna be i don't know another andre robertson and he's clearly not going to be that. And he could seriously work into a three-level scorer. And that's going to be a very scary sight to see. So it's a, been a huge jump for him. It's going to be very important to see where he goes in his third year, though, starting off next season. But for the next award, I want to do six-man of the year. And that's going to go to Kendrick Williams. I had two other people in that area. Well, actually, only one real main one. And that was Ty Jerome. I guess Alexei Pokashevsky might fit in that though too because he was playing a lot off the bench. Now, whenever he started kind of turning up, um, he wasn't playing actually off the bench. He started 28 games and played 45 overall, but 
He was still playing off the bench a good amount. I think, though, that you need to give it to Kenrich. And Kenrich did play on the starting unit. He played 13 of his 66 games there, but the grand majority, he had to be a backup, and it'd actually be to the point where you kind of knew Kenrich Williams was better than some of the people that was like that were like starting over him. But it was almost like, you know, you kind of get used to it. like almost like when James Harden have to start off had to start off the bench. Like you knew James Harden could be part of that big three with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant. He practically was. Um, but you knew he was better than Tabo Cephalosha. He just played in that designated bench role. I think that's kind of how Kenrich Williams was. And he wasn't just playing at shooting guard. He was playing at small forward, even offending power forwards. Like, I think when he got traded to Oklahoma City, he was listed at the four. He's not been that. He's able to guard three positions, though, at a very, very high level. And it's not just that. It's also the offensive game that really turned up for him to the point where he was averaging 44.4% from three-point land, attempting 1.8 shots per game. So not a ton, but I mean, he was still hitting regardless of kind of that sample size he was taking a game. So overall, he was averaging eight points, four rebounds, and 2.3 assists per game while getting 0.8 steals. And for him... He was kind of like a Swiss army knife in the sense that he did a lot inside. Like the biggest kind of breakthrough game for him where I think the idea of him starting or the idea of him playing above Hamadou Diallo kind of shot up was against the Chicago Bulls. And this was in February when everybody was hurt. I think it was like insignificant almost. It was like 16 points eight rebounds and the Thunder pulled off like a comeback victory or they were very very close to the win or something but in the fourth quarter you know what it was an overtime game I remember covering this but in the fourth quarter in overtime Kenrich Williams was the man at like six foot seven at the two forgot who the Bulls were placing up against him but it definitely was not pretty he worked inside for everything, and it was the offensive rebounds that really got his name on the board. That's what it was. It was the second chance points he was getting off of just flying into plays, scalping down the rebounds, and reaping the benefits of them. So the 4.1 really doesn't speak enough volumes as to what he was doing, because a lot of the really rebounds he was getting were just kind of coming out of nowhere, just left field. And when he was going for, you know, rebounds, he was averaging 1.3 of those on the offensive side anyway. So he was very versatile in that sense, but the three really made him legitimate. And he's not a guy who's going to have the ball a lot. The only time he's going to be there is really for backdoor cuts and catch and shoots. But in a catch and shoot spot, I'd seriously rely on Kendrick Williams more than most of the players on this roster, just because of how he's kind of turned up in the major moments when taking those shots and he still has those games where he's like shooting one of three or something from downtown but he makes up for it on working like in the post and actually in the mid-range because he is good there but he always seems to be kind of in the top bracket when you're talking field goal percentage so that's the main deal for me but it's also just the impact that he's had because if you would have taken him out out of the second unit what would their defense have looked like I don't think it would have looked that pretty to be quite honest with you. And I mean, the way he was able to hold it down, it was not him working on the perimeter. He'd actually kind of play, I think I made the comparison like 
I don't know, back in February, actually. I compared him to a, like a free safety almost, where he just roam around the field looking for areas to kind of just sneak in to the passing lane and go off with it, because he has been a pretty good ball hawk in that area too. But the defense has just been so ripe, and to go along with the three-point shooting where he's going at a 44.4% clip, there's no way anyone's shooting above that. Um, yeah, no one is. Next closest is Ty Jerome. But he's just been so hot there to the point that I'd assume back whenever the trade deadline was going on, the Lakers, the Clippers, the Nets, anyone you think is going to be winning the chip, and anyone kind of even in the lower areas, probably inquired to Sam Presti about his availability. And Kendrick Williams wanted to stay. I would assume that to get him on a three-year, $6 million contract, it would need to be a lot more than what he was given. But yeah, I mean, it's nice to see he's staying around. He definitely was the stronghold of the bench. I know that like in the very, very beginning of the year, Mike Muscala was almost that for some of the performances he was putting up. But for the full 72, Kendrick Williams definitely ranked number one in the bench area. But just going back onto defense, and I was stressing it with Kendrick Williams and I was stressing it with Lou Dort. Those are the two that you really need to pick for defensive player of the year and I kind of already made my case it's going to be Lou Dort there because of how he plays on the ball my goodness um if there were kind of some highlights for his defense I think the main one that sticks out to me is that close close game I think in March against the Los Angeles Lakers where him uh or I guess he was on the right baseline with LeBron James. And this is almost like the final play of the game. I think the Lakers got bailed out at the very end to escape it. But LeBron James, he started out around that like right corner, pressed up against the baseline, worked into like the mid-range almost, and was just kind of dribbling, sizing up Lou Dort, trying to feel him out before he took what would have been the game winner. And Lou Dort's hands were just going all over the place. I don't even know what a just comparison for that would have been, to be quite honest with you. But the hands were just going everywhere. And he was going right in front of his face, right around the ball. But the main point was, it eliminated LeBron James from trying to like bump into him, connect with his hand and go to the line because he would have just pulled it back. And that's what he was doing. He was testing him. And it definitely got on LeBron James because he ended up settling for a pretty bad jumper there. Did not go in, as I mentioned, but they ended up winning the game anyways, so take that as you will. But that was a play that stuck out to me. There's much more that really fly along those lines, but I think that one really kind of encompasses everything. It really just puts it into almost like a like a summary. I don't even know, but yeah, that was the one for me that kind of stood out, and it's just been all about the defense for him all year, but the offense, like I said, has been very prevalent it makes you wonder where he kind of caps out potential-wise. There are some restrictions just due to his frame. Like, he's not going to be the fastest guy on the court. Are you going to put him in an ISO spot? Absolutely not. But can you work on that pull-up game? Can you make him even more effective penetrating the basket? He did a very nice job of collecting free throws to end the year off. I think Baisley would probably be number one for me in that spot. But he still got very good at improving there. It was just all, all gradual. I'd say throughout the season, there were never real bumps with him, like you could say with a Baisley 
or other players, even like SGA at times. He was just always a nice, solid piece, and in the worst cases, yeah, he would be a bit frigid, but he always bounced back, and the offense could be kind of shaky, but no matter what, his defense was top of the team, and I don't think you can say that with really anyone else on the roster, so he is number one with me. But to end things out, this is the one that kind of made me think a little bit more than the other ones just because of the two-man race you got here and kind of the different areas they um, they help with the team, but it's rookie of the year. And yeah, there's Josh Hall. You can mention even Gabrielle Deck technically qualifies as a rookie, but it's about Alexei Pogoshevsky and Teo Maladone. And for the cases of both of them, I guess I'll go through. Um, I'll go through them. I mean, they're for different reasons, but they clearly had very, very positive impacts on the team this year. And if I were to pick out one of the two, I'd probably go Teo Maladone. And I think in terms of X factor and like the potential we saw, Alexei Pokashevsky would probably win that area. But if we're going a full 72, Teo Maladone was the guy. And Teo led the team in minutes played. He was ahead of Baisley by, I'd say, like 50 minutes or something. First time a second rounder has done that, at least in our franchise history. Maybe even larger than that. But he was great. 65 games, 49 of them starts because he had to start off the bench with George Hill starting to begin before his uh, hand injury. But he was... He was all there, and he averaged 10.1 points, 3.2 rebounds, and 3.5 assists, 2.2 turnovers to go along with that, but he shot 33.5% on 4.8 attempts from distance, so he was working everywhere, everywhere, and it was almost like one of those rookie of the year cases, or I guess most improved player cases, where he started out even being questioned by Presti, like, should he be playing in the G League, and that was the intention with him to go along with Isaiah Roby to start things out. But then what you ended up seeing was he just broke out in the preseason, specifically against the Spurs. I think it was like a 20-point or 18-point game he had, and him and Isaiah Roby were the dynamic duo. They were the highlights of the preseason, at least in my opinion. I remember writing about it, but over half of the points that Maladon acquired, whether it was him scoring or him getting points off of like an assist or, or whatever it may be, over 50% of those came off of Roby, and it was just because of how he was used in the high ball screen. So Roby would set a screen, and then he'd just dart off, and he was the perfect piece against Jakob Pertl. I believe that's the guy who's playing in that game at center, but he just could not stand with Roby because he was way too fast, and then Maladone's floater game was actually off the charts, and he also had a lot of cross-court passes like and it was like midair too in some of these cases. It was just insane stuff you wouldn't have seen from a 19-year-old anywhere else. And he kept those kind of in his bag of tricks all year long. He's not like Poku where he's all flashy, but he just kind of turned into this really reliable guy for us. And it started off on the bench, like, and then he just kept working his way up when Hill got hurt, opened the door up for him, and then he was off and running. He had that game against the Brooklyn Nets, it was either in January or February where he got over like 20 points and all of them were coming from three. Like he was splashing it. He could not miss. I think he went six of six 
in the game as well has set a record for the time being. I think Poku snapped that. Um, yeah, I think he snapped that against like the Suns or something. But Maladone had that, and he was ahead of everyone on the roster on catch and shoots. Like he was shooting above forty five percent. That's obviously dipped as time has progressed, but he's still been very, very good nonetheless. And he hasn't been on national media's radar. I know whenever I was tracking the rookie ladder, when uh, Maladone and Poku were going off, like there was no Bays, there was no Dort. Maladone had 33 or 34 points, and Poku had 25. Maladone barely, barely scraped the top 10. He was tied for 10th with like Trumo Kiki or something in the ladder. I still don't think the ladder was like, you know, very well thought through because Maladone had a whole season of experience, and Trumo Kiki had like two 15 point games to get on there. But. Yeah, he, he fell off, but he was still very good uh, overall. So he ended up breaking the Thunder's three-point rookie record, took it away from James Harden, and he's just been consistent. So I think that's it for me because of how he's done it through 65 games. Only other guy to play more than him was Kenrich Williams with 66, but Maladon played overall more than just everybody else on the roster. So I think he would take that. But Alexei Pokashevsky is like right there, and I would tie... But I feel like that's just super lame because I feel like you do need to pick one of that out of the two. But Poku's right there. And to start out the season, this was a player who everyone thought of as a project piece. And even when he was selected, like the talk was he probably will not be all that great. He was playing in the B League and I think Greece. That's where Giannis started playing too. But it was all of, he's super, super raw, look at his frame, 7 feet, and he weighs like 190 pounds. They juiced him up like 15 for the the draft combine, or I guess they didn't even have one. But whenever he got drafted, I mean, he's listed at like 205, 206, maybe even more than that now. But, I mean, he, he looks very, very tiny and fragile at his frame. So the expectation was he'd be someone that is like a McDonald's All-American. And there would be bumps in the road for him. And it'd probably take two years to even gauge where he would be at. Just because of the fact he was drafted at 18 years old. He started the league out at 18. He turned 19 at the back end of December. So he, he made like the draft cut by a week almost. He's younger than some of the top prospects even in this draft class too. So yeah, he was super young. And to start out the season, he looked exactly as advertised. Could not make it three. It took him like weeks almost to finally drain one down. And it was very sad because against the San Antonio Spurs in the preseason, he looked good. He had double digits in the game. He was hitting mid-range pull-ups. And then he just entered the league and he couldn't make a shot. And it was kind of, everyone was saying it was based off confidence that he wasn't making him. I guess maybe it was a mental thing, but he also was just having turnover after turnover. He never seemed to have things together. And everyone on social media kind of just immediately said he's a bust. This was a terrible pick, just total hate towards the guy. And they were kind of begging, you know, saying we should have picked like quickly, or I guess at the time that was, yeah, that was probably the hottest guy um, back then. But yeah, that was kind of the talk. Like he sucks he's trash, and people still have kind of those same reserve rights. Now, it's in a very small area now, but there's still people who are hating on the guy, which is ridiculous, but he battled through that, really went from the start of the year to the NBA G League entrance with no 
big game. He just seemed like he was never in rhythm. So the G League bubble kind of made sense anyways. Um, I will say though, I think in like the final week or something, he was getting a ton of blocks and he was getting rebounds. The shot was kind of going together, but it wasn't anything too special. I do know that there was a lot of chirps though, not about Ty Jerome going because he made sense, but people were hesitant about bringing Alexei Pogashevsky and they thought, hey, he's leading the rookies in blocks right now. He's kind of turning up on the shot. You should just keep him in and continue to play him. But Presti wanted to try him out in the bubble. Probably the best decision that could have happened. Worked with Moses Brown, worked with Ty Jerome, and it sure as hell worked with Pokashevsky because it gave him that platform to be able to make a ton of mistakes. Every turnover didn't kind of change an impact of a game. Like, sure, you could get a couple losses in the with the blue system, but does it really matter? No, because you're going to be bouncing right back into the pros in 15 games, and it's a 15-game season. Who cares? I think the Lakeland Magic won the championship that year, like this year, but who cares? It was like a month. This was pretty much like summer league basketball that was going on, so it gave him the room to be able to throw really terrible passes, to be able to have those one of 10 games, but it also put him in the forefront of of you know just playing with the basketball first off but also just distributing and even you know working as a shooter with a ball in his hands so those gross led to some highlights you know this diving catch he made and like throwing over his head to Moses Brown for a lob him working in the pick and roll with Moses Brown and him just shooting the lights out in some of those last games before he got kind of pulled back and in the NBA, I think it made a big difference. And since he's returned, and since that like second half of the season started, he probably has been better than Teo Maladone. He's had those major games, and none of them were bigger than the one he had in the season finale. Like 29 points pretty much is the reason they don't have a 14% chance of the number one pick. But, I mean, he just kept taking gigantic steps that... You know, if he can build up the frame, he already has the physical tools. He's looked great as a passer. He's done no looks. He's done, I don't know, behind the back passes. Just wacky stuff you don't see from a seven-footer. You've seen ball handling skills from him, pulling up for jumpers, like just using his elbow to almost like just swing around defenders to use his arms to fling up like an underhanded scoop shot. Just weird stuff to go along with like soaring dunks. He has the traits of like a star, damn near, at least from like a physical, I guess not a physical stance, but with the frame he has, some of the stuff he does, you don't see from seven footers normally. And once he builds up and becomes just a bigger player, we'll see. But yeah, he does have the inklings of being a legitimate uh, future piece. And I think Maladone goes for the same. The real talk is like six man. For the rest of his career. I don't know if you want to chalk him up already like that. Like if you get a Jalen Green. It becomes an issue. Almost because I feel like Green already warrants starting. Same goes with Cade Cunningham or Jalen Suggs. Uh, If it's like a James Booknight. Or like a non top 10 pick. There is kind of a question. And there is like a little positional battle there. But Maladone. He does have the potential to be 
like a starting shooting guard in the league to be the pairing next to SGA. And I think people have kind of blocked that out, but coming in as a second round pick and averaging over 10 points per game with some of the passes he's made. Oh yeah, he has the attributes to be amazing. And I think if he gets stored back into the bench, he could quietly become like a, a trade market asset that someone might kind of lowball, end up sniping, and he'd grow into an amazing starter. I think he can be a very quality starter in the league anyways so off the bench he'd be just an absolute treasure to have and that's going to be a question that will need to be determined but I think like I said the main reason I got Maladon over Poku is just based off the whole body of work but if you dissect it into splits like the second half of the year it definitely does go to Poku and with Josh Hall we really don't know what's going on with him like does that final game he had with the 25 warrant him any votes absolutely not does Deck like get any in his 10 games? No. He looked pretty nice, though, in some of the times. But, yeah, it really was just a two-man race when it came down to it. But just kind of recapping what I had for my awards. I had SGA as MVP, most valuable, or why did I just say that twice? Most improved player, my bad, as Lou Dort. Six-man as Kenrich, defensive player of the year as Lou Dort, and rookie of the year as Teo Maladone. I really wanted to discuss Darius Baisley in here, by the way. I know that might be a name that you're surprised isn't on the list. I just couldn't really find a way to squeeze him in. I think that in terms of finishing, he has become a, a great, great player. So I guess most improved could be a slot you could try to make uh, make room for there. But I think the three-point shot really needed to develop in a major way for me to put him in the most improved player area. So if that were to be juiced up a bit, he definitely would have been in this spot because he only, he shot like over five a game and he shot 29% from distance. That just doesn't cut it for me. But just know if he did have that, he might've just wound up right next to Lou Dort in that column. But I'll get to talking about Darius Baisley and everybody else I did not mention later on into the offseason. We got a lot of time to go. I'm going to be talking play-ins. I'm going to be talking about Sam Presti in the next episode so get geared up for that i don't know for sure if I'm, it's gonna be the next episode will be out tomorrow it might take a couple days so i might do like on and off schedule like one day off one day on it's just gonna kind of be determined as we work through the off season but there's a lot of stuff to go through i'm very excited for it hope you all are too as mentioned, make sure to check out the Twitter to see the giveaway. You guys might be able to get an Oklahoma City Thunder jersey, depending on the retweets. So get to that. I'll get more contest details in the next episode. But other than that, though, guys, that is going to wrap up today's podcast. I thank you all for listening, and I'll talk to you all next time. See ya.